Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Brett Tanner with Keller Williams Realty in Phoenix, Arizona. Brett specializes in investor fix and flips, buyer brokerage, short sales, REO, and past client referrals. Last year, he closed 667 transactions with a total sales volume of $65 million. His average sales price was $98,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. He operates a team with 13 members, one executive assistant, one operations manager, three buyer specialists, two listing department, one short sale processor, one short sale coordinator, one investor department, one REO department, one field technician, and one team leader. Brett Tanner is the team leader of the Brett Tanner Home Selling Team. He has been an agent for seven years. He works the Metro Phoenix market. Brett is a serial entrepreneur. While running his earlier businesses, he invested in real estate by flipping houses. He got his license to find more properties faster. His friends found out and asked him to help them buy and flip. His license quickly paid off as he sold $25 million his first year. Then the market took a dramatic fall. The investor business dried up as home values fell 50% in two years. Brett's business model was broken. He shrunk his staff down to one assistant and considered leaving the business. Brett decided to focus all his energy on short sales. He sat down and started hammering the phones. Brett called everyone he knew and asked if they needed to do a short sell. It worked. Listing inventory quickly rose he rebuilt his business and staff to meet the need. As the market leveled off, Brett recognized opportunity again in the investor fix-and-flip market. A money partner came along and made him an offer he could not refuse. The partner would put up the money and Brett would manage the projects. Together, they will flip 60 to 80 homes this year. Not bad for a young man who just celebrated his 31st birthday. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Brett. Hey, Mike. Glad to be here. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to get to chat with you today. Brett, before we start talking about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what did you do before you got into real estate? I'm kind of what's known, I guess, as a serial entrepreneur, Mike. I, had, uh, I came out of college. I actually got started. Uh, I, was, I was a broke college kid and bought some of the online books and resold them across the internet. It was um, what basically what cheap textbooks is today. I did that idea way before they did it, just not nearly as well. But 
started that business, grew it, and, and sold those off. Uh, I've started a number of other businesses. The one that led me to real estate was flipping houses. So I was flipping a bunch of houses, had a a good agent, but not a great real estate agent, and ended up doing a lot of the work and research myself. So it came to a place where I decided to get my license not to really be an agent, but just to kind of do my own transactions. And then uh, helped a couple of friends of mine buy houses, sell houses, and, and really enjoyed that piece and decided to explore the agent business full time. And that was in 2005, right at the end of the really good time here in Phoenix. How long did you have your license before you decided that this was something that you wanted to jump into as an agent? You know, it didn't take me very long, you know, because immediately from when I got going, you know, I started flipping houses. Immediately, my friends started asking for help. They knew I was doing fairly well flipping houses and, and had done and had, was knowledgeable, at least on the subject. So I started helping them buy and sell. So probably six months in, I decided to make a you know, a run at the, the agent side of things. And I would say, I think my first year, we came out of the gates pretty hot. I mean, it was 25 million-ish my first full year in the business. That's a fast start. It, w- it was a fast start. We, uh, I, coming from the investor arena, and that was a time when everyone wanted to invest. And that was really my background. So I kind of played on that and helped people buy residential real estate, flip residential real estate. But it was mostly on the investor buy and hold side of it. Pretty much all of it was over the phone prospecting to my, my sphere of influence and making those calls, but came out really, really well that year. Unfortunately, the next year was less, and I rode the elevator in production all the way down as the market worsened to where uh, in 2008, I actually contemplated leaving the real estate business. It was when everything had changed. REO was kind of coming on the scene, and I didn't know if I was going to get out. I had to do something totally different. And so that kind of takes you to, to, to that point in my career. So you were almost ready to get out of the business. What made you decide to stay in the business? I was looking at if I was going to stay in the business, everything that I knew and had been successful at had now changed. And so it was just there wasn't a lot of transactions out there. Of course, I was one of those agents who, you know, you, you start believing your own <laughs> what's going on in your mind where I thought, oh, maybe I'm not capable of doing it and I and had all this doubt. And I just decided that no one would really kind of perfected or done the short sale business in a large way. I mean, I was getting a ton of call from clients that were underwater, needed help. And I just decided I'm going to make a run and I'm going to build the short sale business and go big with it. And that was kind of, I guess, the, the first step is no one was doing it. So we, we started doing it. And pretty quickly we had, you know, 40, 50 listings, not, you know, it didn't take very long to get them. And so I started growing it. We became one of the largest short sale teams, you know, in the Valley at that time. All of my peers were running into REO. And if I'd have been a little brighter, I should have ran the same direction. But I, I went, went for some, some, some brain damage and I did um, short sales. And I, and I actually, we enjoyed it. And that was really the kind of the birth of the second round of my team to get to where it is today. I'm trying to look at that transition. Did you end up shrinking your team down and starting over, or did you just retool the team that you already had? Pretty much we got down to where it was just one assistant. You know, we went from a larger group to down to about one assistant and basically retooled it. I mean, kind of rebuilt the whole thing from ground zero. And the second time around, I definitely learned and I could bring a lot of the ways I wanted to build it. So it was really, I mean, it was the perfect storm. You did rebuild it. How long have you been in the business? 
I was licensed in uh, actually June of 2005. So this would be the start of my seventh year. Seventh year. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, we sold right at 667 homes, which we're actually proud to announce. The Real Trends Wall Street Journal report just came out, I guess it was last week for the top, they call it the thousand, but the top 250 teams by transaction sides. And we were number nine in the country. That is fantastic. Congratulations. Hey, thanks. And you're also ranked for your franchise. We ranked um, out of, I don't know how many agents. I think Keller Williams is right around seventy-five to 80,000 agents. We're the number three team worldwide for Keller Williams in transaction sites. That is awesome. You're in Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix is a large place. Are you working all of Phoenix? When you go as wide as we are and selling the amount of homes we are, you work every corner of the valley. I mean, basically all of Maricopa and Pinal County. So anywhere in greater Phoenix, if you're at the airport and you go, I guess, 50, 60 miles in any direction, we do it. Describe your current market. So here's what's interesting. I'm going I'm to answer that question by taking you back to last year, even October of last year. We were probably 60% total distressed. And then the 40% would be traditional. But a lot of that 40% that is traditional is made up of investor flips. And so if you pull that number down, I'd say the real equity number, you know, of regular sellers, non-flip was probably 20%-ish. And today, just eight months later, it's totally flipped. Distressed is less than 40. I mean, an equity is greater than, I mean, greater than 60. So our business plan that I wrote last year for in October for 2012 was immediately invalid in about March. Um, the REO business that we have is down by a third, so we've had to pick that up in other areas. And kind of we're, I had to really put the full court press on this year to get our business to where we needed to be. But our market is fire hot here today. We have less than a 30-day supply of homes on the market at any price point. And if you go under $200,000, um, everything's multiple offers, over list price, sold within 24 hours. I just put a, a home on the market, one of our flips. Yesterday, we had three offers blind. People said, I'll buy it, over list blind. So it's just a crazy, it's a crazy time. I mean, it's just like 2005. If not, I mean, it almost feels like the velocity of the market almost feels stronger here. And that is a huge, dramatic change from last year. What do you attribute that to? Inventory. So we have, the inventory has shrunk so much. You know, in Arizona here, we don't have shadow inventory. Our inventory, I wish we did. We need it. We need more homes. There's just such, so few homes on the market and so much pent-up demand. I mean, our, for, our affordability is off the charts. In fact, there's such upward pressure on prices. The average sales price has gone up. 20% in the last three months for our MLS, which is just unprecedented price movement. It's just, it, everything here is so affordable. You know, we were, the average, you know, our median sales price got up to probably 250, 260,000. And I think today we're hovering around 140. And that's been pushed up a lot just recently. That's got to be an exciting market. So again, there's a lot of change in your career. And you mentioned you're changing your business plan to shift back Let's talk about what areas of the market are you specializing or niching in? I look at my business that I'm in four different businesses all the time, and that's kind of how we measure how we're doing. I'm in the buyer brokerage business. I'm in the short sale business. 
I'm in the REO business, and then I am in the investor slash flip business. So in each one of those areas of focus, we've got a manager that's in charge of, of that department who would then report to me, and then we kind of meet collectively on the goals, and then we drive at those goals throughout the year you know, in conjunction with our, our annual business plan. But So those are the businesses that we're in, and our, our REO business, I wouldn't say that's a huge focus of us today. I mean, we definitely got some great accounts. We offer a great service to our client, but that's pretty much on autopilot at this point for me. So my focus is picking up that traditional piece. And we've always had a great presence in the short sale business. And we're just going to continue to, to maintain that and, and focus on, on the traditional piece of business. Have you noticed a shift in the market over the last year by the banks from REO to short sale? I would say, I mean, over the last, you know, definitely the last 18 months, the and as time has gone on, even if you look over the last three years, banks have gotten so much better at doing short sales, which has increased their ability to close them, so which has decreased REO. You're also seeing a lot of the – not as much stuff's going REO, for, I guess, for three main reasons. One, short sales are easier to get done. Two, a lot of the presence at the trustee sale, a lot of people are buying them at the courthouse steps, so that eliminates REO. And the third thing is the banks are rolling a lot of these out in our marketplace as nonprofit. They're selling them off to them who are like stabilizing communities and, and going at it that route. So REO's taken a hit on all three of those. REO will always be there, but in our marketplace with prices pushing up so quick, I, I think there's nowhere but for REO to continue to go down for the time being. These four business categories, I'd actually like to start at the fourth one first. Can we talk about your investor business? When you say investor, you also mentioned flip. Are these properties that you are personally buying and flipping, or are you helping others buy and flip? So it started out with just me. I, w- I was flipping houses, doing very, very well. And that's kind of where my, that's where I started in this business, as, as I told you earlier. And that's where my passion is. It's really in flipping houses. I love everything about it. I like finding something, creating the deal, negotiating that deal, and then taking something that is probably like the worst house in the community and making one of the better ones. I enjoy that aspect of the design and, and things like that. So I've been doing that, you know, my whole career. And I had a, uh, a large investor approach me and he said, would you help me flip houses? And my first answer was absolutely not. I would have no interest. And he, and he said, why? I said, because see, you'd want to come in and tell me how we're going to paint the walls or, or what tile we're going to do. And I just, I'm not up for that. I mean, I love going in there and doing anything I want to do. And I make the design decision, and, and ultimately I'm responsible. If it makes money or loses money, I made the decision. And he said, what if I put up the money and never bothered you? And I said, well, I'm interested. So he said, I'll put up the money. And I told him, he said, what would you want to do that? I said, well, I'd want half of our profit. Any profits made, I'd take 50% to run the whole project. So today it's grown to a large piece of our business. We've owned today about, I would say, 16, 17 houses that we're under rehab on. And so we'll probably flip upwards of 80 houses, 60 to 80 houses this year. It's grown to a large, you know, a large scale business venture, but it's, it's very lucrative. And, and for me, it's, it's the funnest part of this business, you know, today for me. That's the piece when I say investor flip, it's either my own personal capital or that capital. And then on the other side of the investor would just be investors looking to buy and hold property. This investor who put up the funds and you're, you're splitting profits, are you just working with the one investor or have you pulled other investors in? 
we were looking at pulling others, but it grew to a level to where it's just him and it, it's as probably as big as we'd want it to be today. I mean, we, we might consider adding some, but he's been so great for us that it's just him and they, they had a lot of money. So we've, we've grown that very, very large and it's just him and he and I work very, very well together and he just lets me go to work and just send him a check. So it, it works really good for both of us. Let's break that down into how you structured that. Do you have a formal agreement between you? We do. We set up an LLC that we're both members of, and it basically spells out that I am the, you know, the operating partner. And so I, I buy, wire, acquire, manage, rehab, sell. Literally, he, it's a completely passive investment for him. So I manage everything from you know, acquisition to underwriting the deals to, I mean, literally from finding it, fixing it, rehabbing it, selling it, and closing it out, I manage the whole thing, myself and my team. And then you pay for your team or the, I guess the proceeds for the cost of the team come out of the pot? Yeah, when we buy, uh, obviously we're paid a commission. Um, that's paid by the seller. So we, we get that. I, I, when I flip a house with this investment, I don't charge them anything to list it. So that all comes out of my piece of the profit. And the way I tell the investors, I'm invested like you. I'm not getting paid unless we make money. And I think it was a very fair way to structure it because it put you know, me at risk with them. That I said, look, if we don't make money, I, I don't get paid. So I have a vested interest in, a, in us winning. So it, it's, been, it's been very, very good. They're very, very happy. You know, I fly out once a year to kind of update them on where we're at. And we obviously have full bookkeeping and accounting and, and all of that that goes out on a consistent basis. But and I've got one of our admin is specifically in charge of, of just managing the day-to-day on that. How did that get initially funded? Did this investor just put in a large chunk of change at the beginning and that's it? Or have they been putting in little bits of money as you go along? Do you have to call them every time you need some funds? How, how's the money part work? So basically we started with I would call it a decent amount of capital. You know, we sort of, it's pretty sizable enough to do two or three houses at a time. And about every three months he would call me and say, I want to put in more money. I want to put in more money. He would be calling me actually. And so it grew to where, like I just had a call today, said, I want to stick in some more capital. I said, you know, perfect. So yeah, he'll wire it in. And once it's in there, the money stays. We pay out profits as we go. Whatever capital's in there just continues to roll. Are you paying out all the profits on on each project, or are you retaining some of them inside of the organization, the LLC? We hold back 5% of the total profit just for additional expenses or anything unseen that could come up, but then the 95% we cut into and pay out profits right at closing. Oh, at closing? At closing, or within a day or two of, of closing, no, we, we pay it out. So he gets his check, I get mine, and so the profits don't continue to roll. So if you want to do the next project, you need to go back to him to get another investment. No, the capital stays. So the, the seed capital, whatever number, for round numbers, let's use a million dollars. The million dollars would stay if we made a hundred grand profit. So we had 1.1 million. We would pay out the hundred thousand. The million would stay and we would go keep rolling that money. And my goal is just to turn the capital. The goal is just to turn it as many times as we can in a year. You know, we target when we buy a home, our ideal timeline is 90 days or less for money in to money out. And that includes rehab, construction, sales, and ultimately closing it. Our ideal timeline is 90 days, so which would allow us to do four turns a year. Your agreement is that, that the capital that this investor has put in is his and will be returned to him 
when you dissolve the LLC. Exactly. It spells out that I'm just I just manage the capital. None of the capital is mine. You know, whenever we we dissolve it, we had an initial agreement which is up at the end of this year. There's no doubt in my mind they're going to want to extend, I mean, we'll do another couple year agreement. But yeah, it's been it's been very very lucrative. But the capital it it does stay in there until the end of our agreement. Everybody's happy when there's an upside and there's a profit. You guys are going to split it. What if it goes negative for some reason on a project? What's your agreement there? Are you both going to share in the loss? Knock on wood, we've only lost money on one property, and it was uh, it was a decent amount. We lost twenty grand. The next deal we made forty thousand on, so the twenty thousand loss carried forward to the next project. So we only made twenty thousand on the one we made forty instead of the forty. So in other words, you both participated in the loss. Absolutely, the loss carries forward. Now the only way the loss at the end of it. Now if we got to the end of it and there was money lost, and they didn't want to continue going, and they shut it, and we chose to just dissolve it, whatever loss then would be carried only by them. But as long as we continue forward, we're willing to make it up in time. Any recommendations you could make to someone who wanted to put together these type of agreements? I would say the best thing would be to formulate your track record. First, I mean, to go back even further would be, you know, you've got to do this on your own, and you've got to have a proven track record. You know, when he, he asked me if he could invest, he said, would you provide an example of all your flips? I said, we already... We already have that put together. Here you go. Here's the last 40 I've done. And when he looked through it, he said, this, this is incredible. I want to invest. And that's obviously when I told him no. But I would say the first thing is get your track record in place and prove that you can work the model. From there, I mean, I would just go find the best real estate attorney that, that money could buy and ask them to formulate your agreement. You know, it's pretty basic. I mean, it, it spells out all the normal. Obviously, it's, it's a passive investment. Obviously, it's subject to risk. You know, but the returns you can generate far exceed what you could ever get from the stock market or something like that. But yeah, I would just say get some good advisor and some good counsel and, and make sure that attorney's bouncing it off a, a solid CPA so you understand the tax ramifications of the flipping business. But yeah, it's worked. I mean, it's worked very, very well for us. I never dreamed it would be as big as it is. It, it's definitely very, very exciting for us. How did you find this investor? How did you bump into him? How did that come about? Funny enough, it was a introduction from one of my one of my staff members said, you know, it was actually her CPA. I've been working with a CPA forever. He wants to buy a couple buy and holds. Would you help him out? I said, of course. So we just started talking and then, you know, he started talking about have you ever flipped houses and, and it led into that conversation and it kind of just built from there. He he asked, Hey, you know, what can you show me some examples just like I told you? And then yeah, it led to him wanting to be an investor and I was very I kind of shortened the story for here, but I was very against taking on investors because I didn't want to have any pressures from, I, I just didn't want to be, have anyone tell me what to do on the flipping business. Cause it was the one place, like I was the ruler of my own domain, you know, and everything else, obviously we have, a, we have clients and we have, um, you know, we have people we answer to, and this was the one arena where I didn't answer to anybody. And so I really enjoyed that piece of it. And so I had to be really clear with him that, you know, if you if there's ever a time where I get a phone call that you want to pick the tile, instantly there'll be a wire that hits your account and we're going to shut it down because I'm I'm not I'm just not up for that. And he, it, I have to call him. I mean, he would never call me. I have to call him and say, Hey, did, did you get your profit check? Do you have any questions? So he's been just the most incredible. It's the best partnership. It's it's a wonderful partnership and really works for both of us. You mentioned he's a CPA. Is this his personal money that he's putting in, or is he pulling money from other investors and putting it in on their behalf? No, it's their their personal personal money. You mentioned returns. What kind of returns are you netting out of this thing? 
our returns have had a little bit of pressure this year just due to the market with the with the properties we're having to pay a little more than what we paid last year. Our goal last year was to net a minimum of 15% money in, money out on an asset. You know, so we buy something, whatever the purchase price is, whatever the rehab is, the total is $100,000. We're looking to be at about $15,000 profit was the minimum where we'd want to land on that. That we had, we were averaging closer to 20 for last year. This year, we're probably closer to 10. So we've had some downward pressure on our margins. However, our risk has gone down equally. You know, there's so much velocity in our market that our risk is almost non-existent. So we're on an annualized basis when the capital's deployed, we're getting over a 60% return annualized. Right, because that 15% is on each project, you're turning them in 90 days. So annualized, it's say on the low end 40 and the high end 60% return on the money. Actually, no, you're splitting that money when it comes back out. So his return on his money would be half of that. He'd be making 20 to 30%. Exactly. Last year, their return to him was about 30% last year. Not too bad for a, a passive investment. Backed by real estate and, and, and you know held in real estate to where even it, it's not like where it could go to zero. I mean, it, it, we could take a short-term hit and, and obviously we could always make it back up. It's not an in-run stock. Exactly. Well put. Tell us more about this investor project because there are a lot of people interested in this side of the field and very few people doing it, especially at a, at a level that you're doing it at. So how are you finding these properties? We obviously look everywhere. We look at the trustee sale. We look at wholesaling. We look at the MLS. I would say today the bulk of our purchases are coming from the MLS. I've got one person on my team and one person actually that isn't on my team that all they do is write offers all day long. So we're submitting literally hundreds of offers per week. Then once we get a deal negotiated and accepted, I'll kind of walk you through our process. So to to acquire them, we're literally submitting hundreds of contracts per week. They're running, you know, a rough rehab budget based on what they can see from the pictures alone. Once they get an accepted contract, our process is that we go out and visit the property. I'm usually only there twice at the asset. Once for about 15 minutes to determine the scope of work, and then once at the final walkthrough before we go on online to, to market the property for sale. So when we go out to meet the property, we meet the contractor, the agent who locked the deal up, and myself, we'll meet there to determine the scope of work. And what we're looking to do is see that our original estimate match up with the contractor's estimate to really do the work. From there, if we're in line, you know, we would move forward. We would actually still do an inspection. We take that inspection and send it to the contractor to make sure that there's nothing that, that they might have overlooked. And from there, if we're still in line, we move forward. Now, if that budget is greater than what we thought, we've got to look at the numbers a little tighter to make sure, can we still make this deal work? Will it be profitable? And is this within the risk tolerance that we want to have? If at that point it's not, we cancel the deal in our inspection period and we get out. If it isn't, we move forward. From there, our contractor would break ground. Literally the day we close, they would break ground the same day. They've got a five-week build time maximum. They need to do any and all construction inside of five weeks, and there's penalty clauses if they cannot get it done in that timeline. From there, we're looking at, we're trying to have a less than five-week sell time, which takes us to our, obviously, our just right about our 90 days. It gives us a little bit of protection. From there, right before, once the contract is completed, we send the same inspector back through 
to re-inspect and punch out that house again just to make sure there's any missing outlets or anything. And then I would do a final walkthrough right before we go in the MLS and we put it in the MLS. And so usually with all of those different quality assurance processes, we're able to, you know, on, when we sell the property to the end and buyer, we really don't have any issues in their inspection period because we've been through the property so much. And then from there, it's just, you know, a regular listing that's contract to close and, and things like that. But there's definitely some procedures and some things you can do to increase your returns with with smarter negotiating. We've got an addendum that really spells out some of our terms and our expectations. We incentivize a buyer with a $100 a day incentive for up to 10 days if they can close early. We also charge them $100 a day for every day they close late. So that sword kind of cuts both ways. But our goal, I'd love to pay everybody the 1000 bucks if they can close 10 days early. Because, I mean, I want to get the money out and move on. So we've kind of put a little carrot out there. But that kind of is an overview of our process from end to end there. When you're trying to estimate at the very beginning, what type of margin are you trying to put in? Are you trying to put a percentage of profit in at the beginning or a dollar amount? So we're looking to, again, our minimum would be to net 10%. And our estimates include, we, est- we, have, we went through our first 50 flips and we analyzed like what were the real utility bills as a percentage. You know, when a buyer did reinspect, what was the real percentage of money that we had to come back and put back into the asset? And what we found that our cost to sell with me not taking a commission was nine and a half percent was our selling cost. And that includes some title, utilities, about one percent for miscellaneous inspection things. Now we've managed to make that better through our process. But we estimate that it's going to cost us 9.5% to sell it. That's 3% of the buyer's closing costs, 3% of the buyer's agent. So it's another 35 in miscellaneous expenses. But we, we estimate that. And so then our profit number has got to be a minimum of 10% for us to, to move forward on that deal. And if we can't make a 10% on our money, we just on, on that investment, we won't do it. The 9.5%, are you including holding costs in that? You said utilities? We're including like not holding costs from a standpoint of like hard money or something, but in terms of exactly utilities, insurance, you know, just theft, just anything and everything that occurred. You know, we, we broke out our previous 50 transactions and said, what, you know, factors did we not place in here before in our formula? You know, can we look at that are things that are recurring on a consistent basis that we could average over 50 transactions? So that's what we look, you know, just things like, an example, theft is one. You have to budget for theft because when you own 15 houses, things are going to get stolen. Cop, I don't know about the other parts of the country, but here copper is like liquid gold. So copper on houses gets stolen. About 20, 30% of the time, we're going to have definitely at the plumbing on the side of the house, it's going to get stolen. AC units are a big one. I would say about 10% of the time we get an AC unit stolen. You know, there's things you can do to reduce theft, but it's always going to be a piece of it. So you've just got to estimate for those things up front. And you have that in your 9.5%, the theft issue? Exactly. So we've averaged all that into there. So we've, you could say the carrying costs or however you want to word, you know, theft, insurance, utilities, all that's about 3.5%, including closing fees at titles and like that. Everyone knows that on these flips, you make money when you buy. And so let's break that down just a little bit more, that process of how you know how much to offer. How do you do that? If we looked at something in the MLS, I think we all know when we see something that could be a deal, right? You're searching for a client or whatever. 
you see something, I think this looks like a potential deal. It wouldn't work for my client, but it might work as an investment. And at that point, we'll take whatever the list price, if it's $150,000, we'll just drop a number in there, $140,000, if we think that's what we could get it for. From there, our formulas will pre-fill like that. We'll, all we need to do is plug in our buy price of 140. Then we're going to look at our sales price, which let's just say, for, for, for sake of an example, let's say we're going to do 220000 From there, it's going to calculate the cost to acquire, the purchase cost. The formula will calculate that 9.5%. Then the only other piece we've got to put in is our rehab budget. Let's just say in this case, our rehab budget was $20,000. We'd plug that in and instantly it would say your net profit is a dollar figure. The net return on the asset is whatever, 13%, for example. And the annualized return based on a 90-day turn time is whatever that is, 72%, whatever that number is. And so it instantly plugs all that in. And then we look at it. Are we being real with the – the big key is the rehab number. Is that rehab number realistic based on what we can see without being at the property? And we've got a pretty good feel based on age, condition, and, and things like that. So usually we're pretty – you know, we've got a good ballpark. So right there, that's what we look at. If those numbers make sense, we would write the offer. Now, obviously, we want to try to negotiate it better than, than the 140 or better than what we thought. So we're always trying to negotiate it for less. And then hopefully we try to be fairly conservative on our final, we call it our ARV, our after repair value. We try to be fairly conservative with that. You know, we want that to be a number that we feel like we could reasonably get, but hopefully we could get a little, and in this market, we're usually overshooting. We're selling it for more than what our, our after repair value was. And, and so from there, that would be the, if that all made sense, we'd lock that deal up and then we would go through our, our underwriting process. And, you know, to take even a step back, Mike, we didn't start with all of this. I mean, we obviously started, it was just me doing it on my own and I had pretty good data, but when we became a, you know, doing it at a level of this size, that's when we developed all of, all of these systems and, and formulas. And the key piece of all that is going to come through your bookkeeper. If you've got a, my bookkeeper is incredible. He does an amazing job and he helped me get the numbers that I need to build the formulas but he's the I can I could have him pull a report for, you know, give me the theft percentage across our assets for the last 120 days, and he could instantly pull that out. So having access to the data is critical. Are you finding properties that have these huge spreads? In your example, you used a price of 140 and a final sales price of 220 after it's repaired. Are you really seeing properties that have that big of a spread? We are. I mean, we're seeing deals like where you could net, like I said, last year, we were finding deals where we could net 15 to 20% on our money. You know, today, like I said, we're closer to 10, but absolutely we're finding them all the time. Now these are properties that are in obviously distress. I mean, these are in rough, rough condition. So, I mean, we're often coming in our average to give you an idea, our average rehab, I'm pulling this up while I'm talking to you saying, give you a real number. Our average rehab Average is about $34,000 a house. So we're doing massive construction. And what's your average price? Sales price or acquisition price? Either one. The acquisition price, and I'm literally pulling this live for you, about 125000 average of what we have, we currently have on the MLS. What we own that's under construction, the average is 128 So that's pretty consistent. What's your average sales price at the end of that? 207 
on that group, on that's in what's under construction, and 196 on what we currently have in the MLS. So about 200,000. And those are live numbers. I pulled those right from our spreadsheet. So those are those are accurate. When you go in to make the offer, are you finding that the properties are typically priced low to reflect their condition? Or are you having to go in and make a low offer or a low ball offer to try to get them down into reality, into the zone of where you need to be? I would say, you know, it, it all depends. I mean, sometimes the properties are priced accordingly. And sometimes we've got to come definitely prior to January of this year, if it wasn't priced accordingly, we'd come in where we needed to be. You know, today, if that list price doesn't have the margin built into it, you could offer less, but we're seeing someone else will step up and, and buy it. And we're experiencing a lot of competition from end users. You know, so the end user, he can pay a lot more than I can because he's not looking to make a spread. I mean, if he even gets to what it's worth, he's okay because he got a home. You know, where we have to, obviously, we have to do it for a return. And then some, you've got some investors that are new to maybe the flip game and they're willing to operate where they'd only make three or 4%. And they're just a few deals away from taking a hit to where they're out of the game forever. So, you know, you just got to base on your risk tolerance. But I'd say we find, you know, we're able to find deals that, you know, make sense, but it, it's kind of all over the board on whether that list price starts where we need it to be or, or if, it, if we negotiate it down quite a bit. You mentioned that. Another key factor other than buying right is this estimate, the rehab budget. How are you going about doing that? Are you sending out a contractor who gives you estimates? Are you doing the estimates? You mentioned you're not in that part of the game. So who's doing the estimate and what criteria they're using? How are they coming up with the right number? We have a a project manager that was an old business partner of mine when I was in the landscaping business that runs all the project management. So he'll meet me out there and we've done so many estimates now. I mean, it's really a, I mean, it's purely a system at this point. In other words, the same, the same paint goes into everyone, the same tile goes into everyone, the same granite. Obviously there's scales. We, uh, we have two packages. So if it's anything under say $175,000, it's getting package A, which is the same tile, cabinets, carpet, granite, all the same. And then if it's going to be over 175, we're going to, or if it's something higher end, we'll do something a little better. But we've got it down. We've got our contract negotiated on a price per foot or linear foot basis for every single line item. So we basically, same thing, created a spreadsheet and formulas on paint. I already know my paint cost is $80 a square foot based on the size of the home. So if I've got a 1,000 square foot home, it's 800 bucks to paint it interior and out. 800 for the in, 800 for the out. So we've got everything down to that much of a science to where we can nail that rehab budget out of the gate, and we're going to be pretty in line with what that is. I mean, we're going to keep that right. I mean, it it doesn't blow up way beyond what we thought. I mean, there's obviously always changes and something I may modify as time goes on, but typically we we get that budget in the beginning and we, we stick to it. Have you gotten to the point where you're buying your rehab supplies in bulk? Like, are you buying your tile in bulk or your granite in bulk? So we looked at doing, um, you know, like buying, say, 50,000 square feet of tile. What I found was, and then I'd have to warehouse it and deal with that. So I looked at doing it, but I was able to negotiate a contract from the same people that sell like Home Depot and Lowe's. I obviously don't get Lowe's and Home Depot's pricing, but I can get a great price. So we were able to, it didn't even make sense to warehouse it. But we've got every piece of it negotiated at such a rate 
that you know you can do very very well. All those big companies like Lowe's, you know, we've got a contract signed with them, so we get about fifteen percent off with them, or we buy a lot of the fixtures and stuff like that. But carpet, again, paint, we've got all those either the trades or the materials negotiated to where there's almost no room to improve on where we're at. We, we on the lower end, like for granite or something, we'll we'll do prefabricated granite and we'll buy bundles of it, and you can save some money that way. But we've, yeah, we've definitely, in the beginning, there was a lot of figuring out how could we continue to lower our costs. Today, you know, I'll meet with some of my peers who, who do rehab at a large scale. And, and, you know, the three of us can brainstorm and, and share our vendors and kind of see where we're at. And every now and then I'll pick up, like I just met with and had dinner with a guy the other night where he was getting his appliances that they put in for about 15% less than I would. And he shared his contacts. So now we're going to use that. So you're always looking for ways to improve the process, but we've got it pretty dialed in at this point. That's interesting. So you kind of have a little mastermind group going with other investors in your area? Another um, person that basically does exactly what I do. I'm, I'm a huge believer in mastermind. Um, in our marketplace, and actually one of your previous interviews with Russell Shaw, who's actually my mentor in the real estate business, but um, there's a mastermind group here that's essentially the top, let's call it 20 agents in the Valley. And they meet once a month, every month. And I've been in there for five years. I've been fortunate enough to be a part of that group. But yeah, we, I'm a huge believer in masterminding. So if, I, if there's a group of folks that are, for example, in the rehab business that are doing what I'm doing, I believe we can all sit down. I don't think we're competing with each other. You know, when you get to the point where you're selling, I'll even back up. So Russell, I, I told you a little bit, he's my mentor. One of the things we sat down in the beginning when I was getting my career started, he said, I just want to be clear, Brett, you and I will never compete. Not because you're not going to be good, but because there's so many homes sold. You know, I'm selling four to 600 homes a year. If there's 100,000 homes sold, you and I aren't competition. We can both win together. And so I've really kind of carried that forward in my career that I'm not really competing with anyone in my marketplace. There's plenty of homes to be sold where everyone can get their fair share or their unfair share, as it may be. So I, I think you can definitely get a lot more by giving, and everyone can be better for it. You've mentioned your contractor. Are you the general contractor or is somebody else the general contractor? No, I am not the general. We have a general and then they manage and he's the general as well as the, you know, manages the projects. You have multiple properties going at any one time. Uh, how many crews are they sending out? We've got probably at least two of every trade. You know, ideally you want to line it up to where, you know, the guy's painting one house on Monday, the next house on two, you know, you see you're moving crew to crew to crew. We definitely have our, our A crew and our B crew, but we have pretty much two, unless we use like, for, for example, like our carpet vendor, they're huge. They could do 50 houses a day. So for them, I mean, it's just a matter of just scheduling it, saying, go out and do it. But in the other crews, it's a, um, you know, he's definitely managed them and, and sending them out and organizing the, the work to be done on which house on which day. So it's a lot of, if you're asking in terms of people and crews, I mean, it, it, it's a lot. It's a huge amount of people that are involved in this. But they're all obviously subcontractors at that point. And they're subcontractors of the general contractor who is not you. This is another party who's responsible for making sure this, this project gets turned in, was it five weeks? Five weeks, exactly. And so we did, you know, we, we've had multiple general contractors. And it, it just boils down, I think, to a trusting and who can deliver because you're going to be contracting, you know, today, like I'm looking at what, just on what we're working on, 
it's over $250,000 in rehab just on what we're working on right now. So you're, you're going to be writing large checks and draws to someone. So you definitely have to have a huge amount of trust with that person. You mentioned that when you find a property, you start plugging numbers into something to find, you plug in the, the buy price and the sell price and the rehab. What is that something? Is that a spreadsheet that you designed or is that software that you bought? It's just a simple Excel spreadsheet that we've built, you know, with the formulas, the formulas only thing that that's really makes it work. But yeah, just, we plugged in just data fields and there's about, I'm looking at here, there's, I don't know, there's. A to whatever, AG, so I don't know how many fields is that, 40-ish fields of data, but a lot of that's just, you know, street address, city, zip, you know, date purchase and stuff like that. But yeah, we just plug it in Excel that we use via SugarSync or Dropbox. So it's an electronic, you know, it's web-based that anyone can view, you know, our, our contractor, my staff, myself can view it just to see the, the different pieces of the project, you know, where we're at on the rehab, what draws we've given, you know, and if any changes, we change the profit to make sure that the profit's in line. But yeah, it's just a simple, you know, we keep it pretty basic. It's just a simple Excel. We manage everything right through a, a web-based Excel. That's a pretty dynamic project you have going on there. And that's just one piece of your business. Do you think you're spending about 25% of your time in that side then? I might be spending 40% of my time in there today just because um, the capital was was um, so much harder to place. I probably whittled that down to 10% last year, but with the, the shifting market, I had to drastically increase the amount of resources we were putting into finding and acquiring property. So I'm probably spending more like 40% of my day in that today. You mentioned you're writing uh, hundreds of offers per week. Do you know how many offers on average you have to write in order to find a property that will work? I would say today, if we write a hundred contracts, I would say we would be able to put, I would say five under contract. And then with analysis and everything, we're probably able to buy two to three. Those offers are all being written sight unseen. Last year, we had time to where we were able to actually go out there. So no, we were seeing the majority Today, you don't have, the element of time is just not there. Sometimes by the time we'd go out there and drive out there, it'd be gone. In large part, it is. But with that being said, I mean, there's such a bad name of blind offers. In our case, like when we're looking at something that we're buying, we're estimating we're going to spend on average $30,000 into the home. So we're not looking to go out there and go, oh, there's just a little cosmetic fix and back out. I mean, we're, for us to walk away from a deal, there's got to be like, the trusses in the roof are busted and we got to redo all the trussing. And it was, you know, a, a $15,000 repair that obviously no one knew about. Just real quick on your background, did you learn all this just by being a flipper or were you a contractor at some point? So I had the, uh, the landscape business, but not really contracting. So no, I've learned all this through trial and error. And, and that's what, it, it's a constant evolution. You know, we, we learn every day. So we'll see something, if there was something that popped up on four or five deals in a row that we weren't able to eliminate that was a cost item, we'd put that into our formula for budgeting for it. You know, it's just about being, you know, smart, recognizing trends. To me, the real estate business is in large part a data business, whether it's on marketing side. At the end of the day, you're going to reduce whatever you've got to data and either sell to that data or analyze that data on how you could sell to it better. 
And so we kind of apply those principles throughout the business. If an agent out there listening wanted to get into this end and start flipping properties, what advice would you give them? If they wanted to start flipping? Yeah, if they want to start a a flipping side to their business rather than just being a normal retail agent, if they wanted to add a flipping element like you've done, what recommendations or advice would you give them? This is exactly what I would do. I think every agent out there that's that's doing, you know, at least some business knows when they find a good deal. They're out showing their buyer a home and they go, man, this didn't work for my client, but this is a great deal. If I didn't have my own money at that point, I mean, my advice to any agent, first of all, is to be your own best customer. When you go out of the client and you see a deal and they don't buy it, it's a great deal. You buy that house. So be your own best customer. The second thing, if I didn't have the capital myself, I would find someone in my marketplace who was flipping homes and I would ask them, hey, if I find a great deal and lock it up for you, I want two things. One, can I represent you in the purchase? 100% of the flippers that that have a brain will say yes. And the second part of the deal would be, but I want to watch the process and have you teach me a little bit about what you do. And I could tell you nine out of 10 of these you know, the larger scale rehabbers would welcome the opportunity for a great deal that someone brought to them would, would let you represent them. Of course, that cost them nothing. And two, to let you at least watch the process as they rehab it, that cost them nothing. And, and they'd probably give you some of their time and you could get into it and learn. And then from there, you know, when you get enough knowledge, at some point, you just got to, you know, pull the trigger and do it yourself. But that would be how I would get into it is, you know, be your own best customer, know when you see a deal know what's a deal, know how to do to comp a property and, and understand what you know items you could put into it to add value to it. Have you had agents come to you with a deal and ask to watch the process? You know, I, I've had a little bit, not really, not like the not like I think there should be, but I do have agents that and obviously all the agents on my team, I teach them if they know if they find a deal, we'll buy it and they can represent me in doing it. So I would say agents on my team definitely do that. And some of them have interest in flipping. So I'll walk them through it and they can see it as time goes on. And the way I basically tell them is, hey, I have to drive every flip. So if you want to, you can have access to my calendar and see when I'm going, jump on in the car and we'll go. And when I'm out there, I'll show you what we go through and how we do it. So we're a pretty open book. But yeah, if someone asks, I mean, I have probably a meeting or two a week where I'm, I'm helping another agent with some part of their business. But not, a, not as much on the, on the flipping side of it as, as you would think. And I really don't know why that is. I think everybody's scared to put up the capital. It's probably a big part of it. Probably, uh, that's probably right. Let's move to the next facet of your business, the short sale side. You've been working on that for quite a while. And that side of the industry has changed quite a bit just in the last few years, how it's done. You started when it was very challenging to get these things approved. Help us out with your short sale side of the business. For instance, how are you finding people that want to do a short sale? So in the beginning, I'll take you back and answer it, you know, two ways. In the beginning, it was me with a headset on, calling everybody I knew or buying data for homeowners that were, back then you could do it when they had a notice of default or say about 90 days from foreclosure. I would either hammer people I knew on the phones or I would hammer the phones for prospecting. And I would just call and ask people, you know, basic, simple, simple script. If they were in foreclosure, hi, your name came up on an NOD list. Do you know what that means? 100% of people say no. That means basically on July 28th, your home is going to go to foreclosure and be sold at the courthouse steps. 
do you have a plan for that time? And most of them don't understand how the process works. They have no idea what they're getting into. So we would just take the informational consultative approach of, you know, could I help provide you some information that would kind of walk you through the process? Are you trying to loan mod? Are you interested in getting out of your home? And from there, we, we experienced quick success. I built my whole business via the phone. That's my, my vehicle that I prefer to, to use to generate business. And when I teach or coach other agents, I tell them that no matter to me, if you go out and get belly to belly or however you want to meet people and get people to your database, or if you want to run ads on TV or Craigslist or whatever, at some point, it's going to be reduced to a phone number and you're going to have to call them on the phone and sell to them. So I kind of try to cut out as many steps as I can and just get right to the phone number so that I can call and sell to them. And so it started with just me on the phones. From there, um, I hired uh, uh, one person to get on the phones with me to, you know, again, do the same thing I was doing. He got going, experienced good results, and then we hired a second person to do it, third, and, and so on. And so today we've got myself and two full-time people that all they do is hammer the phones all day long for business, for listings. And we leverage what they're able to do today. You know, obviously we still prospect, but today, you know, obviously we do direct mail, billboards, you know, we do the big marketing type things to try to bring more people to us. But are our, our still things built on, you know, we're built on prospecting. We want to, if someone calls any of our phone numbers, instantly a couple things happen. One, any phone number of mine, I own, I don't know, a hundred phone numbers, is call captured. So the minute someone calls, if they hang up, I will get an email instantly and so will the sales force that so-and-so number called on this campaign. From there, it'll be routed to a salesperson and they're going to call that person, I mean, almost indefinitely until we determine that they're not interested or we get their listing. And the other key to that that I'll take it one step further is everything we do is also recorded. So if you call any of our numbers right when the first thing it says, hi, this call may be recorded for quality assurance, that makes it sound super professional. However, the big piece of it is we're able to listen to both what the consumer says and what my sales force says. And that allows me to constantly create a better marketing message and really figure out how could we get more business from, from our marketing efforts. How often do you review those calls? Definitely when I'm, if I'm meeting with one of our, our, sales, our sales folks on, a, uh, on their goals or you know, in Keller Williams, you call it a 411. If I'm meeting with them to go over that, I would just pick some calls right there and listen to them live. You know, as they get better where I know their conversion's good and I can see that, I listen to them less. But any new campaign we do, oh, I listen to 100% of them. Because I mean, we've had campaigns where we get a ton of calls in zero listings. And I listen to the call and the consumer, the message that I created didn't make sense to the consumer because they're calling about something that I didn't wasn't talking about. And so then I've got a formula to to look where did I you know where did I go wrong here, and sometimes you call and you know you get one phone call then you need to dig pretty deep with that guy and what made you call I mean what what made you call on this you know mailing piece or whatever, so we try to get the best information we can to craft you know the next round of marketing. Constant improvement. Constant improvement. We test it, measure it, tweak it, and go back to start all over again. Now a quick word from our sponsor Real GTV. Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. 
That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. I assume at these calls you have two types. You have calls that you're initiating an outbound call and other calls that are inbound to you. On the outbound calls, where are you getting the lists of people to call? So on the outbound, we buy data. There's a number of people on Google anymore that sell you know, homeowner data, 30, 60, 90 day late, pre-foreclosure. And even today we're moving into calling just regular a homeowner that has equity and could sell because there's so few homes in our inventory. That's something we're, we're just now starting to do. So you can buy that data in a number of places online. I mean, you type in whatever you want, a homeowner data, 50 different places come up. And I've tried a bunch of them. There's a good company we, we were using now out of Virginia called Relevate. Let me just make sure I'm saying that right so I don't send you the wrong place. It is called the Relevate Group, and their website is relevategroup.com. But they're a, definitely a provider of data. Do they clean that list for the do not call list? They do. You can buy it both ways. You can buy it scrubbed and not scrubbed. But yeah, they definitely can scrub that for you. Do you buy it scrubbed or unscrubbed? We buy it scrubbed. And if, you can't, if you're in a larger marketplace like Phoenix, I mean, there's plenty of, there's no shortage of people to call. Any other sources of people to call for your outbound calls? You've got these 30, 60, 90 day lates. Anyone else? So you can call if you're in a distressed place. And again, so 30, 60, 90 lates, you can go pre-foreclosure. Some will call them short sales, leads which is, that's pretty much the same thing, the 30, 60, to 90 lates. You can also buy a list of people that have a foreclosure notice that have not yet foreclosed. The other list of people you could buy is a people that are way underwater based on their mortgage amount and approximate value of their home. That's a great list as well. You could buy a list that, you know, you know they're 40% underwater, 30% underwater, um, but they're current, and that's a great list to call as well. So that, that would kind of be in the distress place. And then if you want to go to the traditional piece, I mean, you could just call, I mean, anyone with equity. So you can flip the coin over and go that way. You do a lot of tracking on these numbers. On these outbound calls, could you give us an estimate on numbers on how many calls that go out versus how many people answer versus how many appointments you're able to set? Our goal for our in-house salespeople is to have 25 to 30 conversations, two-way contacts a day. So that doesn't mean calls, right? The calls could be, you know, whatever that number could be, as many as it takes to get 25 to 30 conversations. From there, a good a good salesperson on the phone should be able to set, I mean, appointment a day is, is our goal, but they should be at, you know, worst case four, I mean, hopefully four to five a, a week. And from there, we'd like, especially distressed, we list such a high percentage, you know, we're looking to list two to three a week. We have one of the listing agents on my team this month, she'll list, this is a record month. She's going to be real close to 20, which that's huge. That's a, that's a big number, but she's really worked hard and she is a conversion machine. So she's on the, she's on the upper end of the scale, but I would say a minimum we're looking for would be eight eight signed listing agreements a month. So appointments that you go on versus listings you sign, your signing looks like around half. Half of the appointments you go on, you sign them up? We're hoping to do greater than that. I mean, that I would say if we set five, I would look for us to list four. So I'd like to be at more like 
You also mentioned they need to have 25 to 30 conversations per day. How many hours are they calling during the day to get those 25 conversations? Is that four hours? Is that eight hours? So what we typically do is if you came into my my team and watched us in the morning from either 8 to 11 or 9 to noon, we actually just are in the process of moving it to 9 to noon, but 9 to noon, everyone is there banging the phone. So pretty much that's outbound calls. That really kind of sets your day up. I would say the bulk of those two-way contacts are going to happen in that period of time. From there, there's going to be about an hour of follow-up afterwards, following up on old existing business that we haven't yet brought in. And then the goal of the afternoon would be to leave it open for, for appointments or paperwork or, or miscellaneous tasks. So typically, th- those contacts should happen in a three to four hour period. The inbound calls that you're getting, I assume that they're higher quality since they're calling you and, and you don't have to touch base with as many in order to generate a listing or a sale. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're calling us in our our marketing message with is in, is in tune with what we're trying to do. It's tracking with the consumer. You know, obviously those calls are, I mean, they even laugh upstairs. They say, those are laydowns. They're so easy to do. So yeah, it's definitely way easier. It's just your cost to acquire that customer is much greater than an outbound call. Our goal right now with a short sale listing would be for our, our goals to acquire the customer in marketing expense for $500 or less. So if we can pay $500, our marketing campaign works to where every time we spend 500 bucks, we get a signed listing. Then we look to go out, how many times can we do that? I mean, we'll do as many times as we can. What percentage of the inbound calls end up listing? I would say on inbound calls, you're probably, you're probably more at that 50% of the calls. I mean, it's, it's a high number, maybe 40. It's, it's high just because it's so... Our, our message is so clear at this point that when someone picks up the phone and calls, at usually that point, they're just saying, hey, I'm ready to list my house. You've mentioned the message and you keep tinkering with that message, molding it. What message is working right now? For short sales, we focus on the incentives that they can get, whether through like the half a program, which is $3,000. In Arizona, there's a government-backed program that allows the homeowner to get up to $4,500 at closing to cooperate with the short sale. And they have to meet some criteria. So we, we promote that, that basically, you know, if you're interested in short selling your home, you can get up to $4,500, you know, to participate in that process. So that's the message we take out to the marketplace. How are you putting that message out in the market? So either via, you know, like direct mail, we craft a letter that, you know, it, it explains that, you know, get up to $4,500 a short sale. Our billboard, all, we have a billboard up that all is get $4,500 to short sale. That's all it says with a phone number. Short message. Yeah, we found in, in billboard marketing, you really have to get your message across in five words or less, which is tricky, right? We, we started with our, our messages were much longer, and every time we cut it down, we did better. So eventually I was like, what's the least amount of words we can use? So now it's just the least amount of words possible. That's the... That's the goal. So you just have get 4500 per short sale and the phone number. Yep, that's it. We tried driving people to the web. Yeah, we tried that. For us, you can drive people to the web, then they may fill out a form. Well, at that point, they may not put their correct phone number in. So you even reduce the amount of phone numbers you get. Or anyone that calls our, our billboard with our phone number, we instantly have their, you know, their phone number so we can follow up. You've mentioned that. Your whole objective is to get that phone number. 
Yeah, and capture it and, and then route it to the sales force. I mean, that's our whole whether and and we do that on the buyer side of the business, like on our our signs. You know, you'd see two numbers on there. Both are call captured. I mean, everything for us is about capturing the data. This billboard, do you have one or two? How many billboards do you have? I think 11 today. And the reason I say I think is because I just signed a new contract. What we did as we started with digital billboards, the reason we did that is our ability to change messages and continually change a message. I mean, you could change a message five times a day on a digital billboard so we could get something that would work and make the phone to ring. So when we started that process, we crafted about 10 different advertising messages, all with different tracking that we were throwing up on the billboards, on the digital boards. Well, within about a week, it was obvious which two to three ads performed way better. We then took those two or three ads, tweaked them again, tried to do better and better, and pretty quick, we refined it down to the one board that worked. Once we proved the model, then we went to static boards in in residential and other areas. But kind of the proving ground is the digital. These billboards, where are they located? The digitals are all on the freeways. Yeah, they're on major freeways. Some of the things we learned are the greater the traffic, you know, certain areas along the freeway have a greater propensity for traffic. So... In, you know, and through my negotiations and the rounds of billboards we've had, I've learned that the greater the traffic in drive time at any given location, the greater the board will perform. Because if they're sitting there in gridlock for 20 minutes, just sitting there, the board digital, though, you only get 10 seconds of every minute is yours. The rest of it's different advertisers. So they're sitting there for 15 minutes. They're going to see your board just splash in front of them, you know, 20 times. If that person's interested, they're probably going to call. That has been, you know, helpful. What is your cost to put these billboards out there? You know, our budget today for billboards is about 10000 a month. So it it's not, it's something you definitely have got to get results relatively quickly. So it, it's it's very pricey. And I think that's why you don't see, you know, a ton of agents do it. And that's 10000 a month for 11 boards or about $1,000 each. Is that correct? Yeah, it doesn't work out exactly that way. You know, you pay way more for boards in great locations and then way less for ones in not as high traffic locations. But, you know, on average, it averages out to that. But if you were to look at the cost for each board, it wouldn't shake out that way. Obviously, the ones on the freeways are much more expensive. You know, it's all based on eyeballs. You know, how many eyeballs see that board in a given day? You're tracking the response on each individual billboard with an individual phone number to call? Correct. Every board's got its own number. You mentioned you have over 100 phone numbers. How does that work? You have 100 phone numbers, Are they? Uh, and how are you tracking? Are these uh, local phone numbers? Are they 800 numbers? How did you set up this huge pool of phone numbers? So there are services. There's two services online I found that do it. We use both. One is Call Fire, C-A-L-L-F-I-R-E, and the other one's Call 8, K-A-L-L, the number 8.com. Both those services will sell you either local or 800 phone numbers. So we use both depending on, like on our digital billboard campaign today, we want to show a local presence, so we use local numbers. On some of our mailings, we wanted to maybe throw out a bigger company presence, so we'd use an 800 number. But uh, all those numbers you can get on there, they want, all you do is you take that number and you can point the number anywhere. So they're calling in, I can ring that number to a Google number that rings the entire sales floor. I can point it to just one specific salesperson's cell phone. I can point it to any number I want, 
But the magic is just in the minute they call, it captures the phone number. It instantly um, records the call. And then when the call is over, it emails me and whoever the salesperson is going to, I recorded the, the recording of that call. It emails them as well. So when I go into pull tracking, like right now I could with five clicks pull up, you know, one of our billboards or one of our mailings, I could see all the calls in the last whatever time frame I specified. I could see the length of the calls, listen to the calls, and pretty much get everything I would need to determine if it worked or not within about within minutes. Are you able to capture the phone number even with the local phone numbers? Oh yeah, local or eight hundred instantly. So even if they call in and they hang up, we still get an email with their phone number. Does it capture the private phone numbers? Yep. Unless they're, yeah, it can't, there's no way to block it. I've never seen one come through block. I knew that about 800, but I didn't know about your local phone numbers. So they've designed it, the local number that they call that it will also capture the private phone numbers? It does. I have never seen one come through. It's a great question. I've never seen one come through private. So, and I'm sure we've had calls from people that have the number that's private. Just approximately, how much is that costing you to have one of these magic phone numbers each month or each year? It is very inexpensive for all of mine. And I told you I've got, you know, roughly a hundred and then you're charged so much per minute. My monthly charge is about 150 bucks a month. And that's for, I don't know, thousands of minutes. So it's very, very inexpensive. I mean, it's, it, it literally is the only way to determine what you're spending and what you're making. Wow, and that, that is really inexpensive for so many numbers. So like a buck fifty on average per number. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it's very, very inexpensive. Is there anything else you could tell us about generating short sale leads? I would say, I mean, whatever you're doing, I, if you're gonna go out and spend, you know, obviously if if you don't if you don't have a marketing budget in place, I didn't in the beginning. To me, you either gotta go ahead and get face to face with people or you gotta pound the phones. When you get to the point where you have even a small marketing budget, if it's a thousand bucks a month, I would invest it with an expectation of investing a thousand dollars a month to get two listings. And you have to be able to track it and measure and and know, hey, I spent a thousand dollars this month and I got three listings. Next month I got two. And if you did that over time, then you should grow that number. But I I would say the biggest thing is knowing what you're spending and what you're getting. If you do that you can grow it to any scale. Like our, our beginning mailings, I mean, we were mailing say a couple thousand pieces of mail for 1500 bucks. You know, it wasn't a lot. And once we got a mailing to work, then I would grow it. Then I would start mailing, you know, 4,000 pieces of mail, then 8,000 then 16, you know, cause the numbers are pretty consistent. Once you prove it, it if you mail 2000 pieces and get two listings and you mail the same mailing to the same type of data and you mail 4,000 pieces, you're probably going to get four listings. I mean, you're going to double it. And so if you can keep doubling the data, if there's enough people, you can keep doubling the result. And then the next thing will be if you're, if you're doing mail or how often can you hit the same audience and get the same result? And so, I mean, it's, it's just, it's just tracking numbers. If you can know your numbers and, and know exactly what you spent equals what return, you know, you can definitely continually grow your business and, and make it bigger and bigger. How many direct mail pieces are you sending out now each month? Recently, we, we haven't done a mailing in a little bit. I mean, last year, I probably, throughout the year, averaged 20,000 pieces a month. This year, we haven't. I mean, we've done some mailings. It's been pretty small. I'm working on some campaigns right now. I've been so focused on these billboards right now that I've kind of taken my eye off the mailings, and we're still getting such results that I haven't done it. But 
I'm crafting a couple new in our market. One of the reasons I quit in the mail is because our market changed so much and I needed to get a new message out there. So I just need to spend a little bit of time and craft our new piece and then get that out there. You did mention you're trying to get these listings down to $500 per listing and marketing budget. Have you achieved that with the billboards? Are you getting 20 listings per month out of those billboards? We are very close. The only reason we're not is in the beginning, we weren't running this consistent message. We were testing so much. But I would say, and there's also a lag with short sale prospects, unlike traditional, meaning if we get 20 calls today, we may get you know 10 listings today, but next month we'll still get one or two and the following month we'll get one. I mean, there's kind of a long tail to it. So I would say we will be able to be at $500 with the long tail. We're right over that now. So we're a little over it. We're not. The only thing that's helped me in my marketplace is prices. The average sales price has pushed up so much like over what it was last year that it's allowed me to pay a little more to acquire the customer. And so that $500, I guess, to help people to give them an idea of what percentage of the final sales price you want to to look at, because that might be valuable. That was based on about 12%, I would say, of my sales price last year. So 12% of the commission, the gross commission that you pull in. The gross commission. Our average commission was, you know, three to $4,000. I plugged in 4000 in my calculator when I just did it. But, you know, if you invested, so if you're in a higher sales price, you could, if you invested 12.5% and were able to, to mark and acquire a, a customer, you'd be very profitable at that. You'd prefer it to be 6%, obviously. You'd prefer it to be less. <laughs> but, I mean, you'd be, you can be profitable at that number. On the short sales, how are you getting them closed? Are they difficult to get closed now, or is the process been smoothed out? The process is very much smoothed out. The team member that was started actually is my personal assistant. We're going back four years ago. Today is our operations manager. She really runs essentially in large, if I'm not here, she's definitely running the business. But her main task is the whole short sale negotiation piece. She's got an assistant for her as well as we have a virtual assistant. And so she really runs that whole piece. In our business, I really separate the sales process from the back-end admin process. We are blessed in that we really have the best admin team put together. I mean, our admin staff is just incredible. So once sales, whether it's a buyer's agent or a listing agent, as soon as they get an agreement signed by the seller or the buyer, they turn that into admin and then admin takes over. So all our sales force is doing is selling. They don't do paperwork. I found that salespeople are not great at paperwork as a group. And in the less paperwork you have them do, the more they will sell. So we've reduced it. Like in our state, it's a three-page listing agreement. My listing agents know even on a short sale, there's all of that documentation that's got to be collected. I don't care about any of it on the listing side. I want them to sign a three-page listing agreement and admin will collect the paperwork. So you have someone on the admin side that's tracking the short sale from the time it gets listed all the way through when it gets closed. Correct. She managed it. We use Short Sale Commander for that. I would say it's not a great software. It's just what we've had for so long. It's good. If you don't have anything, it's, it's very good. But yeah, anymore, the banks have gotten very systematic. You know, most of the, a lot of the banks are going to Equator. So we carry, like I looked just the other day, we've got about 80-ish short sales right now that we're carrying. And with her and one assistant, she manages all that. Now, granted, she's one of the most talented admin I've ever seen. So that's definitely on the higher side of the scale. 
Who negotiates the offer on the short sale when it comes in? She does. So essentially, once that listing agreement is turned into her, she's responsible for getting it into the MLS, quality assuring the listing, receiving offers from agents, presenting those to the seller, getting those accepted or negotiated, presenting to the bank, managing the buyer, and she takes it all the way to closing to the point where we get a check back in our office. She and one other person are able to handle 80 listings at a time. I assume that's that was not true when you started doing these short sales back in, what was it, 2006? 2008, no, it was not true at all. I mean, you definitely needed, probably one person back then could only handle 25 to maybe 40, just because of the process, there weren't systems on the bank side. A lot of it was our process wasn't good, but it was more the bank. I mean, there was no process at all. It was basically all art. I mean, every time it was different, so you had to kind of just interpret each situation where today it's, it's more science. I mean, they're, you know, it banks have great processes, great procedure, great response times. You can escalate if you need to. So things go much, much quicker. So it, it doesn't require as much labor per file as it did. I mean, they're still very labor intensive, but uh, not as much as it did. Today, how long is it taking a number of days on average when you get a contract to when you can actually close a short sale? I would say the average through all banks, we're probably closing, if we got a contract today, you know, we'd probably take 45 days, maybe on average for an approval. And so you'd close in 75. So you're a little over two months, I would say, just because, and then it, unless it's cash or something like that, but normally it's about 45 for an approval and then 30 days to close the loan. What percentage of your short sales that go under contract are closing? Well, that's been such a moving target. You know, again, going back in time, it was so much lower. Today, we're, we're over 80%. Banks have really helped out there. Oh, they've, they've just gotten so much better, so much easier to work with. One of the keys on that, I want to take a step back, is we've gotten also better on what we take in. So we don't take every listing today. I mean, there are certain lenders we won't take. You know, if a client calls us and they've got a certain set of lenders we would pass on that. We would say, you know, we, we're probably not the right team to help you with that. You know, you, you, we could refer you to someone else. You could reach out to them. We're just not interested in every, because we found that certain deals, if we looked at our average closing rate, or that was what was pulling our rate down to where we weren't closing as many. So certain files we just won't take. You know, the most money you can make in short sales is off what you don't take, not off what you do take. Do you take short sales where there are two loans on them? We will. Again, we just there's a couple combinations we won't. There's just a couple lenders who I won't name, but if you've done any shorts or you could Google online who are bad lenders and they'll be the ones that come instantly up. We just wouldn't take those. But so we'll take lenders on in my marketplace we have to manage the sales price a little bit. I mean if I would say anything with two loans that's under a hundred thousand, we, we can't take it. I mean you just can't make it you can't be profitable by doing that in, in my system. And now that's without the agent working in it, you know, cause I know I, if I give a talk here locally, some agent will always come up and say, well, I can make money doing it. I'm like, but yeah, but you're hanging the lockbox. You're negotiating your file. You know, you're a one, one person show. Well, you could take anything and be profitable cause it's just your time. But the instant you employ people to do it for you and you're managing through a process, if you take those same files, you won't be able to make, you'll, you'll be out of business. Let's move from short sales to another quadrant of your business, the buyers. What are you doing with buyers? How are you developing that business? 
if you looked at our real estate sign today, there's, a, there's an amazing product that's come out in the real estate sign space. It's called Buyer Acquire. And it's almost available, I think, in every part of the country. What it does is it syncs to your MLS, where the phone number you call on the sign, when you call in, like, whatever, our local number or our 800 number, both of ours go to the same place. And you call in on 351, say, Johnson Street. But you call the phone number, it'll say, please enter the house number. So you hit 351, it pulls the information from the MLS and reads them off the information. So the minute they have 351 and say, thanks for calling 351 Johnson Street. This is a three-bedroom, blah, 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 blah. Gives them all the information about the home. It says if you want to speak to an agent, press zero. Some people do. Some people don't. That's not what I'm after. But instantly when they call, we get an email, again, routed into our CRM that's pushed right out to an agent who's available to take a lead. And it says, we've got a lead. And so they call them right then. So we call them back and say, hey, you just called in on whatever, 351 Johnson Street. That product, you know, it used to be the old telephone tree that you had to spend your whole day recording the different messages, and if the sign got on the wrong house, you know, you're recording on the wrong, it was just a disaster. And this product is so inexpensive, it's it's like free. My lender pays for it, but I think it's like $30 a month. I mean, it's something ludicrously cheap. And with our amount of signs, we carry about 130 listings, you know, you're going to get I don't know, six to 800 sign calls a month. And so we capture again, all those and route those to our sales force. And to me, that's the, the key. One of the, I'll tell you a funny story about, you know, Russell Shaw, I got in the business and we, we got a bunch of listings and I called him one day. I said, how do I get more leads out of these listings for our buyers? And he goes, great question. How many do you have now? I said, I have no idea how many I have now. I just know I need more. And so he said, well, how will you know if you get more if you don't know what you have? And I said, okay, you got me. And he goes, you got to go figure out how to track it. So I was like, all right, that, you know, thanks for the help. It's, always, it's usually like when I talk to him, it's a little frustrating in the beginning, and then you're grateful later. So I go back, and I figured out how can we figure out how many calls we got. So originally I had it going to like a receptionist who's making like ticks on a sheet of paper. Well, that doesn't work. And then we tried routing them to an agent, you know, like the round robin cell phone thing that I think every agent's done. The problem that none of those solve is if someone calls in and hangs up, the call's lost forever. So I had no idea how many people were calling in on signs and hanging up because someone didn't answer quick enough or, you know, that you put them on hold, you're going to have somebody call them back. And the answer is, if your business is big enough, it's hundreds of calls per month. So once I put this system in place, I was literally blown away with how many calls we were getting that we were getting a chance to sell to. So we do very, very little in terms of marketing dollars spent on the buyer side of the business. We invest all of that budget in getting more listings, which feeds the sign calls. You're generating this six to 800 sign calls per month. What percentage of those calls are turning into closings? So we sold um, 250-ish buyers last year. So it's not a huge percentage, but part of that is due to our, my team in the past, and we're getting better at this, this is something we're working on. We're great at getting people that have a need today to buy a home. Like if they're buying in the next 30, 60 to 90 days, we're all over it. The guy that's six, eight months out, we were a little weak on, on the follow-up system to stay in touch with him for that long of a period of time. We're since working a to automate some of our our CRM processes to do that 
for our agents. But I would say that, so if we close 250, that the percentage is very, very low. I mean, the conversion rate's very, very low. But I don't think that's true because I think that's more our fault, not, you know, the quality of the lead. And in my experience, the greatest lead or the best lead in the real estate business is a sign call for a buyer. There's nobody, I've never found a human being out there that's driving around calling on real estate signs that wasn't interested in buying a home, right? They're not going, oh, I just wonder, I wonder if I could just get like 15 agents to just call me a lot, right? Let's play that game. No, they really, I mean, it's someone they're either buying or they're selling, right? They're calling because they want to get the price because they're selling a home four doors down. So we really work, we work those leads over in a, in a very, very big way. Sounds like if I ran some quick numbers, sounds like you're getting about one in 30, about 3% are converting at, at the end. So from, from how many calls you get in to how many actually turn in the contract, tell us a little more about that process you're trying to put in place to convert more people. We've always had, obviously, a, a CRM for each individual team member has their own CRM. We're looking to try to, from a team basis, what can we do to help them communicate more with those folks one of the things is going to be video from maybe them, most likely me, you know, video via email out to that consumer. We're going to leverage some call technology to where I could call and leave. It'll seem like a personalized message, but it's going to be the same message going to 5,000 people. And then we're looking at texting, a way to text out to stay in contact with with, with people. That, that The new data that shows texting, you know, they're saying only a certain percentage of emails are read, but, you know, text, there's such a high percentage of texts that are read. You know, we're starting to, to look into that technology because we've got everyone's, obviously, that when they call on the sign, it's a cell phone number. So we're looking at how can we better leverage the cell phone numbers that we have. That sounds like that's still in development. That is very much in development. And we're getting closer. You know, I've got Again, today we have so many projects going on, and, and I'm kind of an idea guy, so you got to refine it down to what are we focusing on and what are our, what are our core projects we're going to work on and get completed and, and then keep moving, moving forward. Let's talk about the last quadrant of your business. That's the REO business. You said you came to that party late. How did you get in? The way I got in is I leveraged some relationships that I already had. I'd helped a lot of agents with either our documentation or, or some training on the short sale side of things. And so when I went to get an REO, I, I started talking to some agents, Hey, who do you know? Could I go with you to a conference? Could you introduce me to so-and-so? And it was actually through, you know, through other agents that I was able to at least get an introduction to someone who could potentially give me business. And then, and, and also some of our other partners, like our title company here locally was very, very much involved in that space and was, the joke that they made is we can't get you REO business, but we could get you in the room where REO business is taking place. And then what you do inside the room, that'll determine whether or not you get it. So I was able to get some introductions and then it goes back to hammering the phones. I mean, if I got someone's name that I thought could give me an asset, I mean, I will call them forever. One, one asset manager, I, I called them and said, are you guys taking um, new applications? They said, no, we're, we're full on agents. I called her the next day and said, hey, are you guys taking applications? She said, you called yesterday. I said, well, that was yesterday. I mean, I'm, I'm calling about today, right? And I, I'm going to continue to call. Like, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I mean, someone's going to fall out and I'm going to be the guy. And, and if you do that enough, so eventually they're like, you know, I don't know if they're tired of talking to me, but eventually you'll, you know, you, you can get in the door. I mean, it wasn't as hard as, 
it's definitely you got to be on purpose about it. You got to make the calls, but I would definitely say that the way I did it, leveraging some relationships, you know, my only regret, I didn't do it earlier. I wish I would have done it earlier. We just put a hundred percent of our resources into short sale, which ultimately panned out. I, if I'd have had more, I don't know, staff or resources at that time in terms of time to go after both, I'd have loved to have done that, but definitely it's been, it's been a great business very systematic, very task driven. So once you get the right systems and your organization in place, you know, in large part, it can kind of run on autopilot. So it, it, and you can deliver, you know, great results for your clients. How many asset managers are you working with currently? Accounts, we've got three or four large accounts. So not, you know, you hear these agents have got 40. Uh, We don't, we just have some big accounts. So different asset managers, it's probably um, eight to 10 different asset managers. And are they all private banks? Or are you working with any of the government entities such as HUD, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac? We're working with some of the government entities and then the large, large banks. Do you think now is a good time for an uh, agent to shift and move into REO? I think that's going to be area specific. If I were in Phoenix and I was an agent, if I was going to go after REO, I would go smaller bank, you know, like someone that can make a local decision. In, in our place, I mean, it's down you know, quite a bit that if you didn't have, I never want to say no, because here I came in way late and it, and it really worked out. I, I personally am not going after more today. That's just not my focus because I think it's a diminishing, you're going to get diminishing returns. And I think you could spend better effort to get into something. The, the accounts that I do have, I mean, I, I wouldn't see why I wouldn't have them forever. It'll just be a different volume than we're, you know, currently used to or have been used to in the past. But in different parts of the country, like if my marketplace was just heading into distress and I saw short sales were becoming a big, you know, a bigger business, I would definitely go fight for REO and I would go get, I definitely would go for the big three, Fannie, Freddie, HUD. I mean, that's the golden ticket. And then I would go down, I'd take the biggest bank and work my way backwards. You've mentioned your team quite a bit during this conversation. Let's talk about the team. Can you walk through each of the positions that you have how many people are in those positions, what those positions are responsible for, and then anything about compensation. For instance, are they paid on a salary or hourly or a bonus or a commission, those kind of things. Can we do that? Sure. Yeah. I'll start with the person that runs my life, my executive assistant who, who you spoke with. She is compensated hourly. We don't have benefits per se. Depending on the person, though, I may pay for their their medical insurance, and I may fund their 401k, but that's not um, it's, that's a choice, not a not a requirement. But yeah, so she's purely hourly. Her role is she her first role is to manage my life and make sure that I'm where I need to be when I'm supposed to be. She runs my as we talked about my latest thing with my calendar I gave over to her, so she has complete control of my time. And what's so funny is she's been with me now. I think it's her third year. And I've had a number of executive assistants or personal assistants. She's the best one I've had. I mean, she's truly incredible. I mean, she knows how I think. I mean, now there there are things that happen. You know, I'll ask her, hey, did you send the thank you card? Oh, I already did it. I, I took care of that. I mean, it, things are just, it's crazy. It's just done, right? Like today I showed up for, for this. She has a folder here that tells me, you know, what I'm doing at what time and a cap, you know, a, a recap of my day along with the things I talked about her a month ago with what I wanted to prepare for this call. She has it all prepared and it's ready to go. So I sit at my desk, 
I walk in, I'm ready to go. So she runs everything. And then kind of an overall office manager and makes sure things at the office kind of run smooth. The next person I'll go to our, I'm just kind of going in, in line of our office here, but the operations manager, she again started as my personal assistant and kept moving, you know, moving up today really helps me run the business. But her, aside from that, runs our short sale operation. So anything short sale, that's her world, her domain. She recently hired an assistant for herself and takes care of that. So she has paid uh, a salary plus a bonus, a percentage of the transaction. But she's got a salary. And then her assistant is just salary only. Let me come down the line. We've got, so in REO, I did my REO business a little different, I think, than most. I have always, I built a certain margin that I wanted to make in the REO business, and I kind of backed into it. So I paid purely a percentage for, for my REO manager, a percentage of the gross transaction. I'm not saying that that's the best way to do it. It's the way I did it. It worked very, very well for me as I was able to, like I said, lock in a margin. So for me, the REO business has been very, very profitable. I'm trying to walk you through all the admins. So we hit the admin. We also have a virtual assistant that's obviously just paid hourly. And then I'm going to move over to, I guess, one more admin. We have a field, I'm going to call it a field services manager. That's just an hourly position, someone that's hanging signs, taking off lockboxes, driving properties, doing inspections, all those kinds of things. If I move into sales, I've got one person in-house on the REO department that's paid a percentage of the profits on our flips, as well as a percentage of the commission when we buy. And then I've got an agent, like I said, it's another brokerage that will just, if she finds a deal, she knows she can represent me anytime she wants. And then we split the buyer side commission on that. All of my buyers, sales staff are all on a 50-50 split. So they're all commission-based. On the listing department, the people that are banging the phones for me for listings are all paid a salary plus bonus but the bonus is paid based on listings taken, not listings closed. Because the short sales are, it really doesn't depend on them in large part whether they close. So I didn't feel it was fair to link their compensation to something they had no control over. And so we pay them. They, have, they get a, a very small salary. And if they get eight listings a month, then they go into bonus. The seventh one is actually worth nothing to them. And the reason why I did that, it's kind of a different compensation, is I had people get to a point like in the month with six or seven listings and they would coast. But that really didn't work for me. So I found if you only pay people, if they get eight, you're not going to believe this, a lot of them get eight. So we went that route. So we were able to to get that. And then I think that takes you through there. The only other person's me. I'm obviously on a percentage of whatever we make. So... That's kind of it. And at the end of the day, I mean, our goal, obviously, I'm, I'm with Keller Williams, our goal is to net 40% of anything we do to the bottom line. And that's the goal of, of, of really any real estate business. And that's purely in my real estate business, not counting, I don't count flip profits towards or anything else, but just in the commission in, commission out, regular real estate business, our goal is to net 40% to the bottom line. Have you been able to achieve that 40% goal? We have, yep. And the only other position I get into is my bookkeeper. It's not an in-house position, but he, the majority of the work he does do is for me. I could tell you that that position is invaluable. He, we meet, he and my operations manager, we meet once a month. And I mean, every time we, we go line by line over every expense, 
every piece of income. I mean, we go line by line and every month we find stuff where we're constantly cutting and trimming and, and trying to find out how do we do it for less. Brett, what drives you? It's changed for me over time. So today I have my little girl just turned one this past weekend and, and my son turns four in September. So prior to that, I was, I was driven just to, to be the best. I've always believed you could go out and, and I've always wanted to compete and I was driven for numbers. And definitely when I, you know, when I came to KW, I, I've always, the top five agents every year get to walk across the stage at the annual convention. And that was always one of my goals. And so we've now done that for me. It it was competing there. Now today I'm, I'm more competing for, for my family and it's kind of, it's really changes once I had kids, but Definitely, I, I always want to compete and try to be the best in any given field. So I'm highly competitive. I I have all the rankings for you know for the different people in our organization here printed. Literally, I'm staring at them in front of my desk right now. I'm looking at it, and every month I, I'm trying to move up and and get to number one. So definitely, that drives me today. Though it, it's highly family. You know, it's creating a life for them. You know, and and making sure that they have everything that they they want and that I want to provide for them. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that you had written up a business plan last year and you had to rewrite it. It sounds like you write a business plan every year. Is that true? I do. I like to take when most people are, you know, typically the fourth quarter, you know, it's when a lot of people are taken off. And and essentially, like, my year is really booked right now. I mean, the business we're going to do from now through the end of the year, I really can't make much of an impact on that right now. I mean, it there's little things I can do, but essentially the marketing done, the things we've got out there, the sales force in place, we're kind of the end. The 2012 is pretty much done for me at this point, but I'll usually September, October, as we're going into the year, I'll kind of finalize what our business plan looks like next year. I mean, obviously I'm working on 2013 now, but we'll finalize what that looks like. We definitely write a plan this first year where I had to shred it five times and, and keep changing it because our market just kept changing so much. And I set out to do, you know, I thought this year we'd do 300 to 350 REOs. That's just not going to happen. So I had to revise that and find out how are we getting to our goals with, we're going to lose whatever it is, 150 REOs. I still want to sell a certain volume. And so I had to make it up in other areas. So definitely I follow a business plan. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, I do my goals pretty simply. I do the obviously the business goals, and I boil it down to where each department can see how they contribute to the whole. So each manager in each part of that department can see, hey, if I'm a buyer's agent, I'm doing four transactions a month. They understand where they plug into the greater, the greater goal. So definitely we unveil that, I guess you could say, it every, once a year I'll sit down and have a vision meeting about where we're going and how we're going to get there. And then it's pretty much, I'd say, monthly or we've kind of abandoned meetings on a very consistent basis because they were just kind of a waste of time. But I, I, I manage, I mean, daily I'll talk to the different department leaders. We talk daily about different things that come up. And then I schedule meetings with them probably weekly. But in terms of the whole team getting together constantly, we, we've kind of went away from that. I and mean, we'll do events and fun things, but we don't just pack 15 people in there to hear me talk for an hour. How often do you review your business plan? Well, it's taped to my wall, so constantly. Uh, I mean, I'm always looking at it, seeing how we're doing. And then I run year over year. Like, in fact, I'm actually, I just pulled up my email. I was going to get something for this call, and I looked at a year over year report just came in. So I want to see how are we doing 
you know, the first five months of this year compared to last year, what, what does our profit look like? What are our, you know, our volume? How are we doing? So I definitely, I mean, I look at that stuff all the time. I even like throughout this entire year with my bookkeeper, when we meet once a month, we go over that stuff and I'm forced to do it for about two hours once a month. I mean, it's the best use of my time. So that business plan is ongoing and constant. Brett, why are you so successful? You know, I would tell you that the funny part of that answer is I'm actually not that bright. You know, if you were to give me a, uh, you know, like a purely school academic test, it's not there. I mean, it's, it's hard work. I'm willing to commit to doing whatever it takes. You know, my hours of obviously, I used to just work more hours than anybody because I, I didn't have that many skills in the real estate business. So I would just work 80 to 100 hours a week while I could get more results. Then once we had the family, I had to find a way to somehow get what I was doing in 100 hours into about 40 and not work the weekends anymore. So that came from from people. So I would say today the success that we've had has really very little to do with me and much to do with the team that I've assembled. They're incredible. You know, it, it you obviously know human being can sell 667 houses. It it's them. So we, we've got a great team. They understand that together, you know, like we were, I use this analogy the other day with my operations manager, it's her and I together, it's not just two people. Like one plus one does not equal two. You know, it might be eight. When we come together, you know, it's, it's just the X factor. We can do so much more than we each could alone. And so everyone's really bought into that. I mean, they get the team, they get where it's going. And, and I really do care about them. I mean, in a big way, I mean, there's nothing that they could ask for me for that was reasonable. I mean, that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't do. So, you know, they're a big part. We're, we're like a family here. So I'd say that's it. The team would be the key. How do you keep control of your time? Well, one, I turned my, my time over to someone else. That was an easy way to keep control of it. <laughs> Obviously, Cynthia is kind of my, my gatekeeper. The biggest thing in my world is meetings. I mean, you could, I could have meetings for 15 hours a day if I would allow it. So any request or something for my time would go to her. If it's something she, she'll either know, maybe it's an automatic yes or an automatic no. If it's kind of on the edge, she might say, I, I would need to, to know the, the five things or whatever you'd like to go over with Brett and I'll meet with him and, and to allocate the correct amount of time for that. So at this point, she kind of gets how I want my calendar ran how I want my day structured, you know, for example, like during the day, like today, she'll call and and make sure that every single meeting is going to show up, you know, confirm that they're going to be there. She'll call them 30 minutes ahead of, Hey, are you running late? You know, just cause you could spend another half your day just waiting on people to show up somewhere. The majority of our meetings, I'd say we, we always do at my office. I try to almost always meet at my office so I can keep working. And if they're running late, I'm still here working. But I mean, I, the final thing for me was turning it over the other thing is my cell phone hardly ever rings. All those calls are routed to the office and handed by admin. I mean, the calls and the people that really need me, it, I mean, it's, it's a couple people a day that actually need to talk to me about something. And, and it's funny, if you go back four years ago, when I first hired my first personal assistant, I actually gave her my cell phone and got a blocked number because it rang so many times I couldn't get anything done. And I said, part of me hiring you is you've just got to take all these calls and manage to get it done. So that, that was kind of a transition. I would say to get control of your time, if you're not at the place where the personal assistant, I would start time blocking where you make calls or return emails and stuff at a certain time. But the biggest way is as soon as you can hire an assistant and, and the economics will allow you to do that, I would hire an assistant. It's the 
I mean, if you, I don't care what you pay them, as long as it's, I mean, reasonable, you should be making, I mean, if you don't make three or four times what you're paying them, you're not doing it right. I could tell you for me, it, it I couldn't live without my assistant. I mean, I literally, my life would come entangled in, in minutes. Did you mention you have some affiliate businesses, maybe a mortgage and title company? Is that true? I have partnerships. So we're a believer in, in partnerships. Our partners are title and lending. They've definitely helped. They're like, I treat our, our vendors like stakeholders in our business. My loan officer is probably one of the top 50 in the country, for example. Brilliant guy, great guy, works hard, has a brilliant business. So we, our clients benefit from working with him and we benefit. And so, you know, if we need to, if we work together on marketing and, and different business marketing type things, we definitely, we leverage our vendors in that way. Same with title. Our, our title partner has been, it's been so huge for our business. You know, they've helped me grow it. They, they helped us with REO. They're really just on the cutting edge of what's going on and can get you information. Like for example, they've got great relationship with banks. So if you're in a short selling, you need to escalate. We definitely leverage those, but yeah, we treat them like partners and, and then they definitely, you know, sometimes help us contribute to, to marketing and other things. Do you have an ownership position with those companies? No ownership in those, nope. If you were to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? If I was brand new, I would go to my office and I would pull up the production of every agent in that office. And I'd find someone that was closing 40 plus deals per year. And I would go to them and say, can I set appointments for you and we somehow split transaction and you'll do the appointment and I can go and learn. That's exactly what I would do for the first and set up a, you know, say for the first five deals, can I set them for you and we'll split, you know, the revenue. And I could tell you any agent doing, you know, 40 to 60 deals would be happy to do that. And it's a way for you to learn. I just think there's so much to learn as a new agent. If you're going on your own, I think that's a great way to do it. The second thing I would do or in tandem would be, I would get with a company that provided you know, all of the training, there's a bunch of great companies out there, but I give the company to provide all the training and tools that would help you be successful. Brett, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now are valuable? I think they're very valuable. So I could tell you my library of things like this is to say it's extensive is very mild. I mean, I've got literally hundreds of tapes of things like this and I subscribe to, I don't know how many things just like this. I think it's so valuable because if you're listening today or you're listening, uh, I'll use Russell. When he, I go to see, like, we're friends now. We, you know, we go to lunch, we, we hang out. When he gives a local talk, I still go. And I learn something. Mean, if I take one idea away that helps me sell an extra 20, 30 house a year, well, it's well worth my time commitment to that. So the only, I think the best way to, to summarize that is the best quote I've ever heard was the only difference between who we are today and who we are a year from now, you know, are the books we read or the people we meet. And I would translate this into that book, which would be like the learning. The only difference who we are is who we learn from and what we learn from what we read or hear. So I think it's very, very valuable. Brett, I've gotten to the end of the interview. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about we haven't talked about yet? If I was to leave people with one thing would be figure out what you want to do. And I think setting clear goals, you know, without just making it all about, you know, an over, oversimplifying goal setting, but I think establish what it is you're going to do 
and I would pick the number in terms of the real estate business. How many deals are you going to close next year? And it doesn't matter what that number is. If it's 10 deals or if it's 400, what's that number? And I would back into that on a monthly basis of, all right, I want to close whatever 100 deals a year. I'm going to need about eight a month or whatever, the, you know, 120 a year, I'm going to need 10 a month. And then how am I going to get 10 closings a month? What does that look like? Is that, is that five buyers and five sellers? Is it 10 you know, sellers and no buyers? And then what activity am I going to do that's going to plug in to get me those? And I think when you back it down to that simple, that's really what my business plan looks like. I think when you get it in those simple terms that, you know, if you say I'm going to close 120 deals, it sounds like a lot to maybe a lot of people on the call. But if you go, well, it's only 10 a month, that's only, you know, two and a half a week. I could, I could put a buyer and a seller, you know, two buyers and one seller a week together. That's not that hard to do. I think when you reduce it to that, it becomes doable and then you just take action on that. So that, that would be my only, that would be my, I guess, my, my parting thought. Well, Brett, you give sage advice. After a huge setback, you bounced back and rebuilt your practice based on four stable pillars. Your determination, drive, and persistence combined with your willingness to hammer the phones guaranteed your success. You use hard data to plan your business, yet you're willing to pivot when the plan is not working. You are a true entrepreneur. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.